Welcome to Osteopathy Unplugged. I'm Steve Paulus Dio. And I'm Bonnie Gintis Dio. We're American osteopathic physicians, and we're a married couple devoted to the practice and the study of osteopathic medicine. We developed Osteopathy Unplugged out of our passion for osteopathy and the recognition that our profession needs a more intimate conversation about who we are and what we do. Join us as we sit in conversation, talking about the inner and outer workings of osteopathy. Welcome to episode 13 of Osteopathy Unplugged. In this episode, we'll be introducing a new format for our podcast. We're going to take what we call a deeper dive. We will explore in greater detail Bonnie's Sutherland Memorial Lecture titled, I Promised to Listen, The Life of an Osteopath. We will unpack the key concepts outlined in her lecture and discuss them in detail, and at the same time, keeping our eye on something greater. This deeper dive will involve me asking a series of questions extracted from her lecture, and then Bonnie and I will talk about these issues in a conversational format. In the future, we will use the deeper dive format to explore other osteopathic values in greater depth. Our next deeper dive will take the distinct osteopathic concept of health and explore it in selected detail. We already have a collection of podcasts devoted to health, episodes 7, 8, 9, and 10. We will answer key questions from our audience, allowing us to fine-tune the seminal osteopathic concept of to find health. Let's begin with our questions. Bonnie, you speak of being an osteopath, not practicing osteopathy. You then expand upon this concept and say that osteopathy is not simply something we do. It's a way of life, a worldview, a calling to a sacred path, a way of existing in relationship to everything, including our own bodies, which is a sorely missed subject in most of our training. Would you please expand upon your worldview of what osteopathy is for you and what it can be for us all? Sure. I'd like to start with what seems like a polarity between being and doing. And I want to say that this isn't an original viewpoint of mine. Throughout history, multiple philosophical and spiritual traditions spanning over a hundred or thousands of years have a version of this distinction between being and doing. What I've done is I've taken this this seeming polarity and I've applied it to my life as an osteopath. So for me, it became clear as the fundamentals of osteopathy were seeping into the way I lived my life and the way I saw the world, that being an osteopath and the doing, the practicing of osteopathy, may be different in different contexts, but they weren't really two separate things. They both sprung from the same worldview. This is the way I see all of life. It applies to everything, not just to my way of being, not just what I do or did for a living. It applies to the way I move through the world. You know, I just want to kind of comment from my own perspective on that. You know, this vital quality of being versus the quantity of doing, this polarity that you talk about, We discuss a little bit in episode five, which is the osteopathic ways of being. So I want to direct all of our listeners to that episode as a reference, because I believe that it's vital that we as osteopaths explore and develop our personal mission statement or our action plan, or you and I call the osteopathic ways of being. 
So, I mean, what you're really saying is that the essential inclusion of being an osteopath is not just practicing osteopathy. Right. It's greater than the hands-on part of what we do in the treatment room. So being done well is an essential component to living our lives as holistic osteopaths. I agree. And I think it's really important for people who are exploring this in their own lives and in their own practice to look at being as not something that's passive. Right. I know many people in their osteopathic practice are less attached to the doing part of an osteopathic treatment, and they're trying to be there in a certain way. And some people misinterpret being as a passive activity. It's not. It's very active. It is very active. Having conscious attentiveness is quite active, and it requires a really deep commitment. And it doesn't just require a commitment. It's a skill. Yes, you have to learn how to do it, and then you have to be committed to living it. I would actually argue, and I'm sure you agree, I think being an osteopath, being an osteopathic physician, where we are with a patient for a half an hour, 45 minutes, every time we see them in follow-up, is harder and more difficult than being a neurologist or being a radiologist. The only thing that comes close to that would be being a surgeon, where a surgeon has to be so present for that hour or two hours or three hours that nothing else exists. They only do that several times a week. We do that a dozen times or more a day. All day, every day, with everyone we see. It's a skill, and it's hard to learn. Right. And it's hard to do well. Right. And even on the surface, when it doesn't look like we're necessarily doing much, we're also not hovering. True. Yeah, because hovering is a distortion. And sometimes the problem with hovering, and we can go into this in a future podcast, but hovering is a passive process. You're not active. And there's no skill involved in hovering. No. It's not osteopathic to hover. Right. Yeah. I think people who are afraid of doing or are overly committed to being there and they don't quite know how to do it end up hovering. And it's uh, just not a valuable skill. So, you know, there's an old expression and Mm -hmm. we've heard this many times from many different teachers throughout uh, history, don't just sit there, do something. And Rowland Becker used to teach a little bit differently. He switched the order of those phrases, and he said, don't just do something, sit there. So this quote reversal technique has also been used by other teachers other than Rowland Becker. So it's not unique to Becker. But let's discuss this famous quote from Becker in context to your assertion of being an osteopath, not practicing osteopathy, but also the whole thing of hovering too. Yeah, Steve, that's what I was talking about before when I talked about hovering. I studied with Rollin Becker. He was a table trainer at several courses that I attended years back, and there was nothing passive about him. And he did not hover over patients when he was not in a, what looked like a state of doing from the outside. He was really committed to being present and attending to what we've been calling the necessity of the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Everything that I've heard about him echoes that. And I never studied with him personally like you did. So the key thing I want to say, though, is mm-hmm. being is not not doing. <laughs> okay. Well said. <laughs> okay, let me say it again because it's a, it's a double negative and it's very poetic. Being is not not doing. Doing is based upon production and doing productivity. 
The thing about being is that being can and should be an incredibly active process. Becker knew that, you know that, I knew that. The other thing that comes up is, you know, also how do we apply the being versus doing debate in our own bodies? So even in our own bodies, aren't we sometimes overdoing at the expense of being? For instance, people who all they want to do is exercise completely for developing an image of how they want to look, not how they want to feel. The way that all of this applies to how we both perceive our own life in our body and how we take care of ourselves is going to be covered extensively in some future episodes, but absolutely yes. And uh, I know later in this episode, we'll be talking about the parallels between how we see and care for ourselves and how we see and care for other people. We really need to have a whole episode devoted to osteopathic self-care, using the, the basic philosophy of osteopathy and how we apply it in our own bodies, not as an osteopathic treatment, but beyond the ways of being. Right. And for our listeners, once we've gotten through many of the, many of the basics that we've been laying out here, we'll be getting into a lot of osteopathic self-care. Okay. I'd just like to end this uh, question with a rewrite of all of these famous quotes from all of these famous people. All right. Let's so, hear it. So I'd say, don't always try to do something. Also, remember to be there. Mm, I like that. Because we're also doing both simultaneously. You bet. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go on to the next question. Okay. Early on in your lecture, you speak of interoceptive sensation. Would you please define this term for us and expand upon this term used in neuroscience? And what is the opposite term in neuroscience? And how is interoception used clinically for an osteopath or as an osteopath? That's one of my favorite subjects. I'd love to. You have so many favorite subjects. I do, but that <laughs> makes me a good osteopath. I'm curious. All right. So for those of you who don't have a familiarity with this term, interoception is the collection of senses that allow us to perceive the internal state of our bodies and monitor the functioning of our internal organs. So let me give you a few examples. Sensing the movement of your breath, the beating of your heart, the need to urinate or defecate, sensing hunger, thirst, the gurgling of your stomach, sensations that we interpret as pressure, pain, or itching. So this is all our awareness of things that are happening that come from inside of our bodies. Now, the opposite of this is exteroception. Intero, extero. Exteroception is about the senses that allow us to perceive things happening outside of our bodies. So this usually involves what we think of as the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. But as always, whenever we try to break things up into categories in the living human body, we realize that it can't always be boiled down and separated so clearly. So there are a lot of senses that overlap. Many of you may be asking, where do emotions fit into this scheme? In my mind, an emotion, this is funny, in my mind, an emotion is a combination of a bodily sensation and a mental activity. So most people have a physiologic response that they then attach a story to. And that's what an emotion is. Yeah. And sometimes our mind is a dangerous place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Many people have said, your mind's a dangerous place. Don't go there alone. You might get mugged. <laughs> right. Oh. Uh, but even when we look at senses that seem more physiologic, like when we talk about tasting or smelling, we're talking about something that's coming from outside of our bodies, entering our body, whether it's a, 
a molecule of an aroma in our nose or a piece of food in, in our mouth. So that's something coming from the outside, coming into the inside, and we end up having an awareness of it. So it's a little bit of a mix there too. Then there's another interesting sense that we all have that's hard to categorize. And many people who look at our perceptual field categorize the influence that other people have over us as a separate sense. So it's interesting to think of things like empathy or compassion. These are responses we have to sensing what's going on in another person. And then there are other senses, like the sense of time, the sense of space, the sense of movement. But we need a whole other episode to get into all of these different perceptual fields. For now, the important distinction is interoception, which is sensing things that are happening inside your own body. What I want to comment on that I think is most important about this subject when we're talking to osteopaths, and I'm going to say osteopath, but for everything that I'm about to say, this also applies to any physician, to nurses, to physical therapists, massage therapists, all healthcare practitioners. We could even include parents and teachers because what I'm about to say is true for anybody who takes care of other people. And we all do that at some point in our life. So I want to make the distinction between having a, a practice of osteopathy or having a personal practice of something you do for your own self-care and development. It's been discovered through research, this is very mainstream research in the neuroscience world right now, that people who have a regular practice, for example, a meditation practice that engages interoception. And the two most common things that have been studied have been sensing the movement of your breath or sensing your heartbeat or pulse. Just to be clear, in this situation, you're talking about someone who's meditating. Right. And then as a part of this unique meditation process. Right. They're following their breath. Right. Or personally themselves, feeling their own heart rate right. without necessarily feeling your pulse in your wrist, but feeling it beat in your chest or in right. your body. Right, right. Because you can meditate without having an interoceptive activity. You can, True. You can stare at a flame or you can think about a phrase. Well, I'm talking about interoceptive meditative type practices. Right. And you're, what you're really trying to clarify here is that there are many different styles or approaches to meditation. This right. is one of them. Right. And we're not going to do a history of medication or a stratification of meditation practices, but you just did a mini version of that. Right. And I did, and I did so because they've studied different types of practices, and they found that when a person does an interoceptive awareness practice, that it increases their ability to sense what's going on in other people. It increases self-awareness. Increases empathy and resilience is how it's worded in the literature. Normally, I don't talk about empathy. It's not my preferred word. I prefer to change the emphasis to compassion. I mention empathy here because in the neuroscience literature world, there's a formal psychological test that measures empathy. So they can have someone do a practice, and then they can test their ability to sense what's going on in another person. You know, I know you love neuroscience more than I do. Even though I'm a physiologist, <laughs> I get a little annoyed 
with the neuroscience community, <laughs> and they love talking about empathy, but they hate talking about compassion. Well, that's I think that's changing. I so hope. for those of you who haven't made a distinction, empathy is the ability to sense what someone else is feeling or experiencing, but it doesn't imply that you're necessarily doing anything about it. And I think the dark side of empathy is that when you have empathy alone, you can end up joining the suffering of the person you're being empathetic with. Right. In that situation, I think empathy can commonly get distorted with sympathy. And right. with sympathy, right. and there's really a fine line between the two. And sympathy means you jump in the hole with the person. Right. And then there's no way you can help them. No, because now you're trapped with them. Right. And so empathy, it's hard to distinguish between empathy and sympathy. And sometimes that's why personally... I like the word compassion better. Right. And I'm going to talk about that next. I love that you're going to do that. <laughs> so compassion takes things one step further. And compassion implies that you sense what's going on in another person, but you're able to take a step back and become the observer of that other person's experience. And that gives you the, the ability to be a little bit more objective and then take action to alleviate their suffering. Back to the benefits of people who have an interoceptive practice. It's been postulated that the reason that interoceptive practices are helpful is that you learn how to be the observer of your own experience. So if your meditation practice is looking at a candle flame or thinking about a line of sacred text. Or using a mantra. Or an affirmation, if it's a, sure. a secular sort of thing. All of those things are externally oriented. But in order to observe your own experience, you develop that ability to take a step back, to be experiencing something, but to simultaneously be watching yourself experience it. But when you take a step back, you're not dissociating. Yeah, you're not dissociating. You're not leaving. In fact, the, the insight that you have, because there's a little space between what you're experiencing and what you're observing yourself experience allows you to choose where to put your attention. Right. Because, and this is an important distinction because yeah. unfortunately there can be a distortion that can happen with people who have meditated for years, especially decades. Both of us have had a formal meditation practice for over 40 years. And also both of us have taught meditation. I've seen with experienced meditators, sometimes their technique or their style is to really dissociate. That's tricky. Right. This is why it's important to have a to have a teacher and to explore multiple traditions and approaches because some approaches have you always looking in the same direction. So what I like about a meditation a formal meditation practice that's devoted to interoception is that it keeps us here and now. It's be right. here now. Don't be passive, don't dissociate. Right. And for an osteopath if they have a meditation practice and they dissociate they're not really going to be able to be effective in helping another person. No, because then in the context of treating another person, they'll go into that observational mode and they'll dissociate. Right. And, and then they're hovering and they're so not helping the person. It's really important. It's a really important distinction. And at some point in time when we talk more in a future episode about meditation practices and how it can benefit an osteopath, we're going to really dive deeper again into this whole issue of a formal practice devoted to interoception. Yes. And I just want to mention one other example that's at the not helpful end of the spectrum. I think there are a lot of people who go into this type of work because they're naturally empathic. And if you don't train that ability, you end up experiencing too much of what your patients are going through. Right. And it leads to burnout. 
and then you can't help anybody. It's really important to have a kind of practice that's going to support the development of, let's say, for example, improving your boundaries. If you learn the difference between what's happening inside of yourself, outside of yourself, what you're sensing from other people, or what's just a thought, then you'll be able to set clear boundaries. You'll be able to choose where to put your attention, and you'll be much more effective in taking care of yourself and other people. So having an interoceptive practice also increases your level of discernment within the vast number of sensations and perceptions that come into your system when, you're, when you put your hands on someone else. Having a practice where you've done this already allows you to discern what's important and what's not important. Where do I put my attention? Where do I just let that go? All of this leads to better outcomes for everybody. Osteopaths and all people who engage in interoceptive, pra- interoceptive practices for themselves end up making better choices and how they take care of themselves and how they take care of other people. All right, let's move on to the next question. I know that many of our listeners have heard the phrase, dig on, but many have not. Let's discuss this important osteopathic concept in more depth. Okay, Steve, you're the historian. Why don't you fill us in on the story of where this phrase dig on came from, and then I'll comment on it. I'm going to keep this brief because in the future, we're going to include the whole story around the issue of dig on as an origin story. And it's worthy of just devoting a whole episode because it's such an integral part of what it means to be an osteopath in the 21st century. So over the years, there's been an assumption or a myth that still spoke of dig on as his dying words or famous last words. And that's not true. The catchphrase, Dio means dig on, was recorded in August 1915, two years before A.T. still died. It was the grand ending to an eloquent letter posted by Still in the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association. What's really important to remember about Digon, and we don't need to go into a lot of detail, is Digon means to expand the work of osteopathy. And Still wanted us to, to expand upon what he presented. He wanted us to do research. He wanted us to develop new ways of applying osteopathy in the world. And I believe we've done that. We're not completed no. with our Digon philosophy. We're in the 21st century, but we got to go beyond. We've got to continue to be better. Mm-hmm. I just want to make a comment for our listeners who are not primary English speakers. Digon, which begins with the letters D and O, is a play on words in English. So for those of you who have a degree from a school that grants you a DO, it might mean degree in osteopathy, diploma in osteopathy, a diplomate of osteopathy, a doctor of osteopathy or osteopathic medicine. All of these have those letters DO. And in some other language, it might not be a D and an O. So you need to understand the, the English play on words. So it's really evident throughout osteopathic history that Still's encouragement for us to dig on was really important, and people acted on it. I think my favorite example is, uh, let's see, I'll begin the story. When Still made the comment, and many of you have heard this quote, the rule of the artery is supreme, but the cerebrospinal fluid is in command. Now, many people erroneously think that quote came from William Garner Sutherland, but it didn't. Andrew Taylor Still said that, 
But he said nothing about how to work with the cerebrospinal fluid osteopathically. We have no documentation of whether or not William Garner Sutherland had read that quote or not. But one day in 1899, Sutherland had a spark of curiosity when he looked at a disarticulated skull that led to the development of the whole cranial concept in osteopathy. So I think that's a great example of digging on. And there are so many others. Uh, Another one that comes to mind right now is uh, Jean-Pierre Barral, a French osteopath, whose curiosity led him to explore the application of osteopathy through the entire field of our viscera. There's many more, and hopefully there'll be more that we haven't thought of yet. So still wanted us to expand and not be rigid, unchanging fundamentalists. I think we can move on to the next question. Mm -hmm. Throughout your Sutherland Memorial Lecture, you interweave the radical idea that we are a part of the natural world. At one point, you elaborate by revealing... Let's begin with being mindful of our own bodies. Each of us has our own portable natural world. Let's discuss this proposal further. Okay, first of all, it's not a radical idea that we're part of the natural world. We are part of the natural world. The episode you've been listening to just faded out because you are not yet a subscriber to Osteopathy Unplugged please visit patreon.com slash osteopathyunplugged and become a subscriber in order to have full access to the rest of this episode as well as the complete collection. We have created a set of foundational episodes that will be available for free for everyone. These teachings provide an introduction to osteopathic clinical philosophy. However, the full versions of all episodes are only available through Patreon. Access Patreon through their app or through a browser page. Thank you for listening to Osteopathy Unplugged. And thank you for your interest in the osteopathic experience. Until next time, be well, listen deeply, and stay curious.